I don't know about you, um, but I feel like the older I get, the more cynical I get. The more jaded I get, the more like, this really just can't be true. And I think in my life right now, that is most true when I turn on Christian radio. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the music. It has everything to do with the little, like, moment of praise in between or the verse of the day. And I, I, just, I just start asking myself questions like, is this really true? Like, do you really feel that way? Let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. I began giving just $20 a month soon after my divorce. Money was tight, but it's true. God used this ministry to play the right song at the right moment to speak to needy hearts. I continue to bump it up, and God always covers the gap in my budget. Really, Sheila? Is the next song the right song? Because I think this song is awful, and they should take it off the radio. But... And really, did, did God cover the gap? Maybe you just like tightened your budget down a little bit and started living within your means and the gap always got covered. Or what if God doesn't cover the gap? What if your expenses really are bigger than your income? Is God not good? Is God any less God? Did the Christian radio station let you down? Maybe if that doesn't resonate, one more. Today I broke up with my boyfriend of three and a half years. The hurt was really weighing me down on my, on my way home. I just wanted to stop existing. Let me, I feel these people's pain. Like, I, 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 don't, want to I don't want anybody to walk out of here being like, our youth pastor just mocked these people's pain. That's not my goal, but I... I I just wanted to stop existing, but then the K-Love verse of the day, 2 Corinthians 7.10, instantly comforted me because I knew then that it was God's plan. Did, did 2 Corinthians 7.10 comfort your, your ex-boyfriend's pain? Is that just true for you? How did you know God's plan in the midst of all this. You, you see, we all have these verses. We have these verses we hold on to, we cling to. We might have them on our favorite coffee cup, so every morning when we wake up and we're still groggy, we open the cabinet, and there is the verse staring at us, and the sun comes through the window, and it hits the coffee cup, and everything is right with the world. But part of what I think sometimes we do is we get that twisted. And we miss the context. We miss what God is trying to say in the, in the midst of all that. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to go through a series we're actually titling Twisted. We're going to look at Bible verses that maybe are some of our favorites and talk about what they mean in context, what the author meant, how all of this works together. Now, the goal is not that you have to go home today and like break your favorite coffee cup because it had Jeremiah 29, 11 on it. Right? And, and God really doesn't, that's not the goal. Some of you have that verse cross-stitched on a pillow your grandma made for you. And I do not want you to go home and tear up your pillow. Others of you just wrote that on like 25 graduation cards. 
You do not need to call all those graduating seniors and be like, I totally messed up that verse. But we hear verses like this, and what does it mean in context? And so as we walk forward, I want to help us unpack this. I have a seminary professor, and he tells us all the time that he's just going to destroy our favorite verses, that that's what he gets paid to do. I'm just here to de- destroy your favorite verses. And normally, I, would, I typically disagree with him. I think he just makes them richer. And so I hope that that's what we can do today as we, we look at Jeremiah 29, 11, is we can pull this out and we can make the meaning that much richer for each and every one of us. And in order to do that, I want to teach you three Bible study basics. So the first thing you have to do if you're going to look at these verses is what's the context? Who's, who's speaking? Who are they speaking to? What's happening at the time of the writing? All the context questions, just like if you were reading any other book. The second thing we have to do is say, okay, how does this verse match up with the truth of other passages in Scripture? What does that mean? How does, it, how does it match up against this and against this? And so we interpret Scripture through Scripture. And the last thing we have to do, and this is the most important, if you do the first two but you don't do this step, you've really just been part of a good book club. You haven't actually had a Bible study. And that's we've got to apply it. We have to say, what does this verse mean in our context today in my life? God, what are you speaking to me? So those are the three steps I want us to look at. So context. So we're going to look at a few verses actually before the ones that Zach read in Jeremiah 29, verse 4. If you've got your Bible, open up. We're going to kind of camp out in Jeremiah this morning. But we're going to uh, start in verse 1. And we're actually going to go a little bit further back. I just didn't want to ask Zach to read like four chapters of Jeremiah as we started the service today. So the first thing, Jeremiah 29, verse 1, gives us a lot of the context. So this is going to be audience participation. So look for the answers to context questions here because I'm going to need your help. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, who's speaking? Jeremiah. All right, great. So there's no pop quiz at the end of class. You just have to participate in the middle. It'll be awesome. So Jeremiah's speaking, and who's he speaking to? The exiles in Babylon, right? So, and he's specifically speaking to the elders. So he didn't, this is not children's church time. He didn't like call the six-year-olds up and be like, okay, all the kids, come up front. I've got a message for you. And that's going to be important in just a minute when we see what his message is. But why, and, and Jeremiah, or, yeah, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem writing this letter to the exiles in Babylon. Now, why are the exiles in Babylon? Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, the Old Testament pretty much goes like this. God says, I want you to be my people. I love you. You're my people. I need you to do what I ask you to do. But if you don't do what I ask you to do, there will be consequences for your choices and actions and all those kind of things. And so essentially, what does Israel do? God says, I want you to be my people. They go, we want to be your people. We love you. Okay, great. Like, like shake hands with God and walk away and totally forget and disobey. And God, said, God sends a judge, a judge at some point. He sends a king. He sends prophets. He says, listen, you've got to come back. And if you don't, there's going to be consequences. 
And before we get too, like, judgy on the Israelites, let's not forget how often we do the exact same thing. God says, hey, I I want you to be my people. I love you. I want you to love your neighbor. Not so you can earn salvation, not so you can get a gold star on your Sunday school chart, not so any of those things that can happen, but as a sign that you love me. And how often do we go, oh, God, that neighbor? You don't know that neighbor. Or we say, okay, God, I'll love my neighbor. And then they like play music at 1130 at night when you're trying to go to sleep because you got to preach the next morning. And you stop loving your neighbor a little bit. So the Israelites have disobeyed God. The Babylonians have come in. They're in captivity. So this is the context of this promise. They're slaves in a foreign land. They're essentially back to pre-Exodus. They're living just like they were in Egypt when they were slaves to the Egyptians. They're back in slavery in Babylon. And God sends this prophet to say, I know the plans I have for you. Good plans. Uh, God, we're in slavery. I don't know what you, you think good plans are, but these are not good plans. Now, before we jump into the, the part, I want to take you back one step further because there's something really cool that happens in Jeremiah 28 that I think speaks a lot of truth into our world today. So in Jeremiah 28, two prophets decide to duke it out. Now, if ever you're reading the Bible and two prophets challenge each other, and you might be reading the Bible and thinking, I think the Bible's a really boring book. If ever you see two prophets go to fight, I promise you what's about to happen is not going to be boring, right? Like, it's about to get really exciting. You want to read this part and pay attention. So Hananiah comes. He says, listen, I know we're in, I know you guys are in captivity in Babylon, but really, God is going to fix this thing. You're just going to be here two years. I know you think you're going to be here a long time, but you're just going to be here two years. It's going to be two short years. You won't even know what happened. God's going to wipe out the Babylonians. He's going to bring you back to Jerusalem. He's going to restore all the things he promised. Two years. And Jeremiah says to Hananiah, uh, Hananiah, I, you and I are not the first two prophets in Israel. Prophets who prophesy peace, if, good, if what they prophesy doesn't happen, good things don't happen to those people. Are you sure you want to continue with this message? Because God's been pretty clear this is going to be a while. And at that point, prophets also do really unique things. Jeremiah is walking around with like a wooden yoke that you would put two oxen together on his shoulders. And he's walking around prophesying with this yoke on his shoulders, saying this yoke represents the yoke that God is putting on the Israelite people through the Babylonians, and he's carrying it around. Hananiah walks over, grabs that yoke off of his back, slams it on the ground, and it breaks in two. And he says, I promise you that God will break the oppression of the Babylonians just like that yoke broke in two years. And Jeremiah's like, uh. So he leaves, goes and prays, says, God, did I get this wrong? Is it really going to be two years? And God says, no. Hananiah needs to repent. And if he doesn't, He's going to die within the next two years, or within the year. And if you finish Jeremiah 28, seven months later, Hananiah passes away because he refused to repent. 
You see, I think we come and we live in a day where there are false teachers with false prophecy, with fake news coming everywhere at us. And we have people who have said, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the good plans I have for you is plans to make you wealthy, plans to give you the American dream, plans to make sure you never suffer, plans to make sure nobody ever gets sick, plans to keep peace. And that message proclaimed all over. And some of you are going to walk out of here today and be like, hey, Jason, if you could preach that message next time, that'd be great. That's not the message that God's sending to the Israelites in captivity or to us. You see, we want to read into Scripture what makes us feel good, what makes life feel easy. We want to figure out how we can take a promise and just declare it as truth. That's not what God is about. Scripture is not about you and me. Scripture is about who God is and what God's doing in the midst of all this. So Jeremiah comes back. He's got the the elders of Israel gathered, 50 to 70-year-olds. His message is, "You you need to get comfortable here. You need to plant gardens. You need to build houses. You need to get your kids married off. You need to have kids. You need to prosper. You need to multiply. You need to live here in slavery, in captivity for 70 years. And then comes the whole, I I have a plan, a purpose, a good plan. And if you're an elder in Israel, you're thinking, okay, so Jeremiah, if I do the math right, I'm 70 plus 70 is 140. I'm not going to be here for the good plans. Right? Like, we're not still going to be around when the good plans happen. This isn't good news. You have a hope, but that hope I'm going to be dead for. What's, What's going on? And I think when... But now if we step back, isn't that what we think? And I think that's what's super, super dangerous about verses like this taken out of context. We live in a world where you and I know not everything's good. We don't always prosper. Life's not always easy. Our friends might get cancer. Our adult children might make decisions that are going to destroy their lives. And our friends who aren't in the church are sitting and watching this. They're watching us say, we serve a God who has good plans for us, plans to prosper us. And then they watch these things happen and they're like, well, time, time out. You can tell me how good this God is all you want. You can tell me how good his plans are for you all you want. But I see what you're going through. So either this God you worship isn't as powerful as you think he is. Maybe he's just not good. 
Maybe you've bought a lie and he doesn't even exist. And they walk away from the church wanting nothing to do with it. And I think sometimes the worst part is we perpetuate that. Seven years ago in St. Louis, I was not in ministry at the time, but I was leading a small group, and we had friends who had just had a baby. Nobody had heard from them all day, and so I was driving by the hospital on my way home from work. I told Corey, I'm going to stop. So I stopped the hospital, go in, get their name, go up to their room, and walk in the room. And there's no baby. Baby's in NICU. Baby had a heart attack at birth. It's on life support. We don't walk into that situation and say, hey, but trust Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, plans for your good. They don't want to hear it. What do we do with verses like this? God said it, right? I mean, so like we're not calling God a liar. So what's happening here? And I think what we have to do is we have to compare these verses to other verses of Scripture. Like the one Zach read earlier at the end of John. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus is speaking. He says, here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrow. Or maybe Philippians 1.29 from Paul. He says, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer with him. Maybe we should get that on our coffee cup in the morning. You see, I think this is what makes Christianity most appealing. Is that we don't worship a God who promises to save us from our trials. We worship a God who promises to save us from our sins and in doing that, entered our trials. You see, God didn't stand far off and watch. God got involved. God walked into the mess. God walked into our lives. God walked to a cross where he suffered the worst trials and pain and persecution and humiliation we could ever imagine. So we could know that we were free. That we were saved. We were saved from the mistakes we made. We were saved from the sins we committed. We were saved from the stuff we've done to break our relationship with our friends and with God. He never promised to save us from our trials. He promised to walk with us. And I think this is the cancer that is attacking the big C universal church all over. Some of you have heard this phrase before and you're probably tired of hearing me say it. This is moralistic therapeutic deism. It's this idea, MTD, if you want to just, if you're like, just give me an acronym. Those are really big words, Jason. MTD. When we take Jeremiah 29, 11 and we say, I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and to prosper, and we claim that as our promise, we make our relationship with God transactional. God, I'll do all the good things you want me to do. I'll be a moral person. I promise I won't jaywalk. 
I won't lie. I won't steal pencils from my company. I'll, like, honor my parents. I'll try to keep my ego in check. And God, when I do all that, you give me all the good stuff. Right? That's the way our rela- That's the way we want our relationship. I mean, I want that. Some days I want that. Some, when I, like, have good moral days, I'm like, hey, God, I did some good stuff today. Could I? God's like, I'm not the one dishing out the paychecks. This is not Walmart. You don't take your stuff up that you want. Give God money, and he gives you the stuff you want. To reduce God to that is to make God really, really small. And we don't have a small God. We have a huge God who created us, who knit us together, who created everything we see, and came and died to save us from our sin. And in the midst of that, he says, you're going to have trials. You're going to have hard times. You're going to struggle. But I've saved you. And I think this gives us what we come back to Jeremiah 29 and look at as our thing to apply and take away from this place today. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 12. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. What's the promise? The promise isn't that life will go easy and that everything will be great and that we'll all have huge 401ks. The promise is that no matter what, I will be with you. Never will we be alone. Never will we be in a place where we can't cry out to God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even in that place of hurt, even in that hospital room, those two parents who were heartbroken, God was there. When we come to a point where we balance out our expenses and they're higher than our income, God promises to be there. When our kids make decisions and choices that break our heart, God is with them. And God is with us. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And I think this is what your neighbors can't argue with. They can argue that God's not good. They can argue that, that well, the good, well, they can't. They can argue that good things aren't happening to you, but they can't argue that you're not alone. They can't argue the fact that there's a God who knows you and loves you and wants to be with you and is there with you. So as we walk through this series, as we wrestle with these texts that so easily get misinterpreted and misapplied, I hope you can see there's richness below them when we stop making pithy little sayings on coffee mugs 
and we start digging into Scripture and what it really says, and we begin wrestling with the truth. And the truth is, the God we worship is a God who was found on a cross, giving his life to pay for our sin because he loved us and he wanted us to know we'd never, ever be alone again. Can I get an amen, church? June Stowen uh, passed away this past week, and her funeral service will be on Wednesday at 1 p.m. And then John Young, his funeral service will be this Thursday at 11 a.m. Please keep their families in your prayers. Now I invite you to join me as we pray for the church and for our world. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your love and your grace. We give you thanks that you are present with us, even in the hard times of life, that even through trials and valleys, you promise to be with us and walk with us every step of the way. God, help us to trust you, help us to embrace you, help us to recognize that you are there even in the most difficult of times, and help us, God, to comfort each other and to minister to each other when we are walking alongside people facing those dark times. But God, we are thankful that you want to be found and that you are present with us. Lord, in your mercy. God, we pray for the church universal. We pray for your followers everywhere. We ask that your kingdom would expand, that more and more people would be drawn to you, that there would be a revival in your church around the world. And God, use us to share your love everywhere we go. We pray this, Lord, in your mercy.